We take our Bibles now and turn to the most beloved, I think, of any chapter we might name in the Bible, the Gospel of John and chapter 3. Where in the middle of this great chapter, we read, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And all God's people said, You know, John 3 and the beloved verse 16 consists of 25 life-giving words. This morning, I want us to focus in on just four, really, of those 25 words as the major theme of our study. And I refer to the critical four words in the phrase, who Whosoever believeth in him. Whosoever believeth in him. You see, that is the one conditional phrase in John 3.16. So we conclude, only the one who believes in him is the one who shall not perish but have everlasting life. Belief, faith, trust in Christ is an essential truth of the gospel. Less well known and a whole lot less quoted is the dire truth in this same chapter, John chapter 3, all the way toward the end there at verse 36. But listen to the truth restated perhaps even more emphatically than verse 16. Here's what it says. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. The contrast between belief and unbelief could not be stated in more black and white terms than the black print on the white pages of God's sacred word. Unbelief subjects one to living under God's impending wrath. While belief, faith in Christ means that the condemnation of death is removed and in its place a quality of life which is described as eternal or everlasting. And it begins the day such faith becomes the ground for a right standing with God. The scriptures declare the just shall live by faith. Why, those were the very words of Scripture which God used to open the heart 
of Martin Luther that we've been speaking about lately in these days. The heart of Martin Luther opened by that phrase, the just, those who can claim to have a right standing before God, they must live by faith. That scripture for him ceased his own strugglings, his own works of self-righteousness. By faith, he was brought to the place where he could embrace the only righteousness that would be acceptable to God, the righteousness of Christ alone. This would be his standing. This must be every sinner's standing before God. Not a righteousness of our own, but the perfections of Christ's righteousness as our covering. If you believe, as I do, that faith is a critical component of the gospel and that eternal life or eternal damnation hangs in the balance, then I think you will agree that we must have a clear and certain grasp on the nature of saving faith. What could be more critical than to know that the faith you say you have is the faith that actually saves? You know that everyone in this world has some measure of faith. An atheist has faith. If he is at least an honest atheist, he will tell you what he absolutely believes. And what he absolutely believes by faith is that there is no God at all. So he has faith, but clearly it's not a faith that justifies. The Apostle Paul, after his eyes were opened on the road to Damascus, remember, to the gospel of grace, testified later that his own people, Israel, had faith. But he wept because their faith was in the keeping of the law. He said they did indeed have a zeal even for the true and the living God. But the apostles said that their faith was not an informed or saving faith because, and I quote, not knowing about the righteousness of God, that's provided in the perfections of Christ. His own people, he said, went about seeking to establish their own righteousness. That's precisely why the Apostle would declare succinctly, without compromise, that quote again, by the works of the law shall no flesh ever be justified. If we needed any further convincing that you can have a kind of faith, even based on good doctrine, biblical teaching, and yet have it fall short of saving faith, I think of what James in his epistle gets right in our face and would have us take a closer examination of these matters. Here's what he wrote. He said, You believe that God is one? He says, You do well. The demons... 
also believe that. And they shudder. See, apparently one can believe in a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet one. Someone could say they had learned their Sunday school lessons well, but many may still be lacking the kind of faith called for in John 3.16. Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Many of you I know come from traditions where you have been taught at least this much. That saving faith must be more than just a head knowledge. I know out of my own church-going childhood, I I specifically remember a gospel tract, a piece of literature, and it was entitled, 14 Inches from Heaven. Intriguing title. And what it was saying, it, it warned that it might be possible to have a head knowledge of some facts knowing the facts even of the gospel, while not really trusting Christ 14 inches further down, that would be in the heart. For some of us, maybe 17 inches. That little track was warning that it might be possible to have a head knowledge, knowing the facts of the gospel, while not really trusting Christ from the heart. Now, there is some limited good theology in that idea. After all, the scriptures call for both a head and heart knowledge. If you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, that is heart and head, isn't it? That if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you know to be true that Jesus is Lord you shall be saved. No one here, I am sure, will argue, I hope not, that the right kind of faith is necessary. And because it is, we do well, as we've done in recent weeks, to dig a little deeper into the Scriptures until, in this case, we understand more the true nature of saving faith. And to do that, I've had you turn in the Gospel of John to chapter 3. Because in the narrative of this text, actually, I believe we have no better teaching on the subject of saving faith than that which Jesus himself gives to this man by the name of Nicodemus. Now today's lesson out of this text on faith, I'm going to say right up front, with some irony, I will tell you that you can read all 36 verses of John 3 and you will not find the word faith. What you will find repeatedly is the word belief. And understand that in our English Bibles, the terms faith and believe are synonyms, but in the original Greek of the New Testament, there's only one word, sometimes translated 
to believe and other times translated as faith. But it's one word given by the Holy Spirit that makes up our New Testaments. In verses 1 through 8 of John 3, we're going to see every sinner's greatest need and how that need gets met. We've already established, I hope, that you agree that an essential aspect of the gospel is believing faith. That need must be met in the heart and mind of a sinner. But where does it all begin to unfold? What I want you to see is this. As the story begins, in verses 1 through 8 as a section, the first concern of Jesus is not that Nicodemus somehow muster up some faith in order to get into the kingdom of God. And I thought once long ago when I reflected on this passage, how different my approach has too often been. People want to hear you, I guess, and you get a hearing and they want to know what it takes to be part of God's family and to be saved from their sins. I would suggest that Jesus is probably the best model of a personal evangelist this night with Nicodemus. He does not call Nicodemus not first to believe. Jesus is telling Nicodemus in those first eight verses that if anyone is going to get into heaven, it will be God's doing, not man's. Jesus will underscore this again and again, which is why much later, the enlightened apostle Paul will say in Romans 9, you don't have to turn there, but listen to what he writes, there's no injustice with God, may it never be, For he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. So that it does not depend, this salvation does not depend on the man who wills, but on God who has mercy. Or as the Apostle Peter says in chapter 1 of his first letter, we studied that not so long ago, but I quote from there, God according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. It's interesting that Peter uses the word born again. He uses the same word that Jesus used with Nicodemus. And as far as I know, there's no other place in the Bible where you find the term born again outside of John 3, but in Peter's writing. Now, the term born again, more literally and appropriately can be, probably should have been interpreted as born from above. This is where Jesus begins with Nicodemus. You must, Nicodemus, be born again. How important is this? Well, in the English, we have words rendered that go like this. Jesus is speaking. He who is truth itself, yet he uses these words. Verily, verily, as though, don't miss this if you miss anything, Nicodemus. 
You want to see the kingdom. You want to enter the kingdom. You want to be saved and in right standing with God. Truth, truth. Verily, verily. You must be born again. Now, if that was you and not Nicodemus. And no one had ever shared with you the gospel of grace. What would you have said at that point? For Jesus to be so emphatic. You must be born again. I think we'd do the same thing that Nicodemus did. He'd say, what? How? And you remember, if it wasn't such a serious matter, it, it, it's almost cartoonish for Nicodemus to say, maybe there was a slight tone of ridicule in his voice at this point, I don't know. But he says to the master, can a man enter again into his mother's womb and be born? In other words, to hear the words that you must be born again left Nicodemus in a total quandary. What could he do? Nicodemus is rightly concerned about this matter of being able to enter and to see the kingdom of God. But Jesus says you can't and you won't unless you are born from above. And again, old Nick at night here says, well, how can I do that? And Jesus basically says, if you study the text, Nicodemus, you can't. You can't make yourself to be born again. You can't. But in the kindness of Christ, evangelizing this Pharisee, but nevertheless a lost sinner, says you can't, but God. Through his Holy Spirit can. Aren't you glad you have a God who can save a sinner? Aren't you glad you have a God who, as Peter said, causes us to be born again, that it is not left to us to born ourselves again? Well, let's look at uh, those verses 1 through 8. I'm opened in Ephesians, so I need to catch up with the rest of you. John chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, and notice he says again, True truth. Verily, verily, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Both are a matter of birth, one the natural, the other the supernatural. And then Jesus says to this learned man, don't be so amazed. Do not be amazed that I said to you, 
you must be born again. And then, in one verse, magnificent illustration of the mystery of the gospel of grace, when God works to regenerate, to give new life, to bring a new birth to a sinner, and it's all compacted there in this marvelous verse 8. Read it carefully with me. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. From an earth science point of illustration, he's saying, Nick, think about wind. One thing it does is it blows wherever it wants. And yet wind is not something that you can actually see, but... You know it's there. You hear it blowing. And I remember one time watching a little paper Dixie cup in the backyard in New Jersey when the March winds had begun to blow. It was like entertainment. I sat there in the kitchen window with my cup of coffee. In one minute, the wind blew up as it does in the month of March up there. And the Dixie cup went up this way and over there. Next thing I knew, a few seconds later, the wind changed. I didn't know it was going to change. It picked up the Dixie cup and blew it over here. I thought, isn't God wonderful to provide such curiosities for a weary pastor on a Monday morning than to watch a Dixie cup blow around all different places in the backyard because the wind was blowing. I could relate to this verse. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. Would you say there is a mystery to the wind? I would say that there is. And Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, there's a mystery to how a man gets born again. So is everyone. And then there's no mistaking this. Who is born of the Spirit. Jesus would use the word for spirit, which in the scriptures is the same word for breath of God and can also be translated simply wind. And I said there's a mystery to the invisible, inward working, but unmistakable working of the Holy Spirit in a sinner's life. And Nicodemus is now in touch with the mystery. At verse 9 he says... How can these things be? So follow the narrative. I'm telling you that I believe it is of great consequence that Jesus addresses next. First, he's established that being born again is a work of God. Mysteriously wrought by the Spirit of God in the heart of a sinner. Now he moves on to the next issue as we go through verses 9 through 12, if you will. And even now, the next issue is not one of faith. In fact, what Jesus takes pains to do first is to say that as a sinner, the sinner's problem is not about believing The problem is, by nature, he is an unbeliever. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? Do not understand these things? Here's some more truly, truly. Here's some more verily, verily. Here's true truth. Verse 11, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. But look at this. 
you do not accept our testimony. Nicodemus was one numbered among the very people of Jesus who came unto his own, but his own knew him not. You do not accept the truth. And Jesus begins to bring, I believe, some thoughtful conviction to Nicodemus about the true condition of his heart and that the fact that his problem is he's an unbeliever. Verse 12, I told you earthly things and you do not believe. How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven But he who descended from heaven, that's Jesus, the Son of Man. And now for the first time, at verse 14, the issue of faith is raised. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So that, here's our precious phrase again, but not till verse 15. That whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So Nicodemus has been told that this matter of eternal life and entering the kingdom is something God must do for the sinner. He's been told that his problem is one of unbelief. He has been introduced to the incarnation and deity of Christ when he refers to Moses lifting up a servant. So now the Son of Man, a phrase that Nicodemus knew from the Old Testament, meant to mean the Messiah. In other words, Jesus is declaring the facts of the gospel that only God can save, that man has a very big problem in his fallenness. He is dead in trespasses and sin. He is an unbeliever by nature and choice. And so Christ must die so that those who would believe may in fact receive right standing with God. Now, you've been patient and careful students with me in these weeks, and again this morning, students of the Word. Do you see that being born again is actually the key to the question concerning the nature of true saving faith? If you want to know what true saving faith is, in fact, if you want to know any spiritual truth and understand it, We go back to verse 1 and verses 1 through 15. You must be born again. Nicodemus, you must be born again or you'll never see this. Nicodemus, you must be born again because faith could never spring from your unbelieving heart. Look there at verse 19, further in this chapter. In fact, this is the reason for God's judgment. A world of unbelief. He came unto his own. His own received him not. He came into the world. The world knew him not. Now look at verse 19. This is the judgment. 
That light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light. And while it is true that the gospel is universally and must be universally offered to every sinner so that whosoever will may come. The spiritual reality is that the Bible also teaches that no one of themselves seeks after God. There is none righteous, no not one. Sinner's condition could be no worse than this. He must, she must be born again. And I say to you, I believe the Bible is clear on this, and I know many of you know your Bibles well enough to know this as well. Man, left in his sin, remains in his sin. The Apostle Paul details the fallen spiritual condition of what is called in the Bible the natural man. A man apart from a work of God's grace. What do we know about such a a natural man? The scripture says that he will not and he cannot understand the things of God. Like Nicodemus, he is left to say, how can these things be? When the truth is, it is the Spirit of God blowing like the wind where He will that convicts of sin and that brings the sinner to the place of saving faith. And He does so by the way of the new birth. This is why the Scriptures say everywhere that salvation is of the Lord. That He must be the author of it as well as the perfecter and finisher of it, even of our faith. Maybe especially of our faith, the author and the perfecter. Let me ask a question. What kind of a Savior would make salvation available but not enable the sinner to exercise faith that justifies. But God does provide a salvation and has established that justification, right standing with him, will come through faith. If you remember perhaps our text last week, if you were here, was Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Listen to it again carefully. Carefully. For by grace are you saved, what's next? Through faith, what's next? And that not of yourself. In the Greek language, as we do in the English language, we study the antecedents in a sentence. And I am more than satisfied that in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, the antecedent is faith. And that that faith is not of yourself. It is faith that is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, beloved, if you can convince me that the right kind of faith, the only faith that saves, owes its origin, its authorship, its birth 
to something in the fallen will of man apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, then, well, I guess I'd have for the first time, if you could convince me of that, something in which to boast. My faith. That's what I'll offer to God. My faith. Jesus said to a whole multitude of sinners, you do not come to me and you cannot come to me unless my Father draws you. There's a great deal at stake here in this message. You see, what you believe about these things does have considerable consequences. For myself, I will say I will not rob God of his glory, and I will point to absolutely nothing in myself that could warrant such a gift as eternal life. God in Christ did much more, folks, than just make salvation possible. He is a Savior. So that all I know for sure is that when He had mercy on whom He had mercy, I was included, and for no other reason than to magnify the glory of His grace. Let every man be a liar. And only God tell the truth. Many struggle at this point. Many struggle at this point. May I say, I understand the struggle. I had the struggle myself in coming to this understanding over a period of many years. But I tell you, the struggle is often simply related to a confusion of the many wonderful biblical terms used to describe our great salvation. In this case, for example, John 3, just before you get to verse 16, it is all about the doctrine of regeneration, a word that means really to be born from above or born again. And we've already learned this is the sovereign and invisible work of the Holy Spirit in the heart. While when we come to verse 16, the believing in John 3, 16... And in the rest of the chapter is addressing the doctrine not of regeneration, but of justification. Where the gift of faith becomes the basis for God declaring us to be in perfect standing before him. Because we come believing, trusting, relying wholly upon the righteousness of Christ, not our own. They are different things. Regeneration is one thing. And I believe that's why Jesus began to teach Nicodemus the gospel by saying how essential it would be for God to take the first step in the work of making a new believer and granting faith, as it said in Ephesians 2. So you can know, and we can... I guess agree to disagree on some of the aspects of this, but your preacher stands here. I do believe that the Bible teaches that God's first act, regeneration, comes before faith, not as a result of it. But in the same instant, when born from above, 
I do possess a faith in Christ I never had before. As the free gift of His grace. Faith does not regenerate the sinner. The Holy Spirit regenerates the sinner. God alone does that. But the gift of faith through regeneration is God's ordained way of imputing to me and to everyone who has this faith the very righteousness of Christ. Abraham believed God. It was reckoned unto him as righteousness. And the Apostle Paul tells us that this is true for all those who have a faith like unto Abraham's. What was Abraham's faith like? Well, he heard the voice of God. He obeyed when God told him to leave his country and go to the promised land. Abraham, we are told, believed God when he said he should offer Isaac up. The Bible tells us that Abraham believed in resurrection, in fact. That if he were to slay his own son, that God would bring him back from the dead. Now that's a good primer on true faith. The faith that God authors and perfects in the soul of a once dead sinner. The better theologians search the scriptures and have examined every occurrence of the words faith, belief, trust, and so on. And they tell us that the faith God gives, the faith that justifies, has no less than three qualities. First, there are facts to be heard. How shall they hear if not given the gospel? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. If justification comes by faith in Christ, then one must come to hear and understand those facts. But the second quality of faith does mean more than just mental assent to some facts. Remember, even the devil believes the facts. So the second quality of faith is when the facts become a matter of personal conviction. It is not not unlike what Paul meant when he said, I know in whom I have believed. He didn't say, well, I believe. I know in whom I have believed. And then this third aspect, he was absolutely persuaded. I am persuaded that he, God, can keep that which I've committed unto him. So we have the facts, a personal conviction about the facts, and then what follows and must, I believe, for it to be saving faith, a commitment to those facts and acting on the conviction of those facts. It is believing that Christ is indeed God. The facts concerning his crucifixion and resurrection with a conviction that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient alone for the forgiveness of sins followed by full reliance on that redeeming work. So almost every week, most weeks from this pulpit, your pastor, your preacher will say, have you put your faith in Christ? And by God's help, I will continue to ask that probing question. And then I will rejoice when someone says, yes, I have, I do believe that. And the evidence of it is, I will commit to it. Sola fide is the one of the five solaces that we're looking at as I bring this message. And even though a little past noon, would you believe I bring it to a close just a little too soon? But I know that I must. 
We leave you with this. When reading John 3, remember that Jesus is explaining the new birth. And he is saying there is a certain order to the divine events. Let me summarize them in one paragraph and we'll go. The sovereign spirit of God, blowing as he wills across the landscape of lost souls, regenerates those dead in trespasses and sin, those whose wills were in bondage to Satan and to their own fallen desires, in regeneration as it was in creation, it is as though he breathes again into man's nostrils and the dead soul becomes a living soul. It is one that arises then from spiritual death, confessing with renewed will that Jesus is not only Savior, but Lord by faith to the glory of God's grace alone. It was back in June of 1859. A man by the name of Charles Blondin accomplished an amazing feat. He crossed the Niagara Falls on a tightrope. He crossed on a manila rope stretched 1,100 feet across the falls at a height of 160 feet. Not only that, but in the ensuing days, he excited the crowds even more. He asked, Do you believe that I can carry a man on my back and make the same crossing? Oh, the crowd roared. Yes, yes, we believe, cried the crowd. Then Charles asked for a volunteer. No one stepped forward. He said again, do you believe that I can carry a man on my back across the fall? Yes, yes. He asked for even one volunteer, and no one stepped forward. And then a man by the name of Harry Colcord said, I believe you can do it, and I'm your man. Harry climbed up on Charles' back, and the breathless crowd roared approval at what would be a successful crossing. Now, once again, Charles beckoned to the crowd. You saw what I could do. Do I have anyone willing to come this time tomorrow? And I will do as I did today. The next day, first making a flawless crossing on his own, Charles asked, who will trust me to carry them over on this day? They all believed he could do it but no one climbed up on his back. We're told it was later revealed that Harry Colcord was actually Charles Blondin's manager. He was thoroughly convinced that Charles was capable of the feat and was willing to entrust his very life. He fully trusted him. To Harry, it was a matter of knowing his faith in Charles was secure. He was fully persuaded that Blondin was worthy of his trust. I don't know how else to close this rather tedious and deep time of teaching, except to say this to you as I ask you to stand. Would you stand? Jesus Christ 
my friends, is infinitely more worthy of your trust than was Blondin. Saving faith is more than facts. Saving faith includes conviction of that which is true. And the faith that grace brings is a faith that allows Christ to carry you across the very river of death to the glory where such faith finds its sure reward, yet casts every crown at his feet as to say, to God alone be the glory. I ask you again today, is your faith in Christ? And by that I mean, do you fully, absolutely trust in his work on the cross alone as securing your future and gaining for you eternal life? It is to us to hear the invitation. Whosoever will may come. None will come for they must be born again. But that is God's work. Our responsibility to all who hear is to believe and to trust in Christ. Father, I thank you for this dear congregation this morning for their patience with the long-winded preacher but a preacher with a heavy heart that men and women boys and girls would come to understand that they must be born again and therefore must cry out to God and must put their trust in Christ it's a work father that you can do and I pray that you will even in the heart of one or more here this morning Get glory to yourself and save a soul for Jesus' sake. And in his name we ask, amen.